3: Thank mm-hmm. you.
1: welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, which is gearing up for festival and crawfish season with the 18th annual Crawfish Boil Championship, which will be held in Marrero this Saturday, April 6th, and Pinchapalooza at Deeney's in Bucktown on Sunday, April 7th and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, where the iconic Cajun's Wharf will serve its last meal on June 1, 2019, after 44 years of serving fresh seafood to diners in Central Arkansas. Tonight, in Part 4, we'll talk about the trials of Manson and his followers, at which they were convicted and sentenced to death. We'll talk about the commutation of those sentences after People versus Anderson was decided, which was in February 1972, and we'll follow that with a discussion of the various direct appeals, post-conviction claims, and efforts by several, by Manson and several of his other family members to get parole. As always, we are a live show, and calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. Good evening, Michael. Good evening, Lisa.
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, Cajun's Wharf, that is a pretty big deal around here. Uh, I remember, honestly, they announced that uh, yesterday. Today is the second, right? Yeah, they announced it Mm -hmm. yesterday. I was like, man, this has got to be an April Fool's Day prank, because, I mean, Cajun's Wharf is a staple around here. So,
1: definitely, Mm -hmm. it's
0: going to be a bad day to see that close its doors.
1: Yeah, the article that I read, they're, they've always been kind of a destination restaurant. So they're very, very busy on the weekends, but they're just not pulling in enough business during the week. Right, right, absolutely. And so it's it's been hard for them to keep the restaurant going. Um, and I was reading about the history, and, I mean, I, I think the Mike Anderson – who was involved with it at one time? I think he was from New Orleans, but I'm not really? positive. Not if that's... Yeah. Well, I mean, if they're going to have Asian decoration and, and, you know, French Quarter street signs in the, you know, decorating the restaurant, you got to think somebody from New Orleans was yeah, involved absolutely. at one time. <laughs> but, yeah, and a new development. Yeah. A new development that I pro- forgot to put on the outline, the NFL has approved Sean Payton's proposed uh, interference review.
0: Okay, you're going to have to explain this one to me. What's Plan. the interference review?
1: Apparently, apparent, you know, we remember, you remember the pass interference, no call. Oh, yes, yes. At the Rams-Saints game, Mm-hmm. And Sean Payton proposed that a new rule be enacted that would allow coaches, basically, if if interference isn't called, would allow coaches to challenge no call. And Pull up an article, approved. and it has been approved. It was unanimously approved by a, I guess, a committee, and then uh-huh. 31 out of 32 NFL teams. You know, voted to Voted to approve it
0: Obviously I think Cleveland
1: Browns voted against it Oh, really?
0: The Cleveland Browns were the team that voted against it I was going to bet the Los Angeles
1: Rams No I I think it was either Cleveland Or Cincinnati, I can't remember But I think it was one of the Ohio teams
0: Okay, okay Yeah um, Definitely the committee you're speaking of Is probably the rules committee which is made up of yeah. coaches and, uh, I believe, some owners.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: So, so Sean Payton? No, I think it's a step in the right direction. At this point, I thought what you were talking about was uh, was something to do with uh, Roger Goodell saying he'd take a look at it again. And I was about to say, what's the point at this time? I don't know if you saw Oh, it, no, though, no minor league football kind of took a step back today. Uh, The Alliance of American Football, which was supposed to be the, you know, the feeder system for the NFL, uh, suspended its operations today.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the smaller, the smaller types, you know, I kind of equate it to minor league baseball, don't seem to pull in in the fans and the revenue. In in most yeah. venues, I think like yeah. I think in Los Angeles they do pretty well, uh, but I think in just about every other venue around the country they just don't they just don't pull in the numbers. Uh, at you know I I knew somebody who played for one of those types of teams, and I mean it was practically mm-hmm. him paying them to play, right? Because he didn't I mean, make anything. Right. So, it's but uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of a shame.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, it's a sad day. Uh, actually, as much as I dislike this gentleman's uh, attitude and the way he acts, uh, I don't know if you've heard the name Johnny Manville before, but uh, he actually just entered the league about two weeks ago and he, you know, he kind of tweeted out and he said, guys, I hope you saved your paychecks because the last paycheck you get is the last paycheck they're going to give you. It doesn't matter if mm-hmm. the contract says, you know, what have you? They're not going to pay you.
1: Yeah. Wasn't he? Wasn't he the one that was uh, fired for smoking pot because he wanted to keep smoking uh, pot? No,
0: no, I believe that was uh, oh, okay. a guy by the name of Ricky Williams. He played for the Saints actually at one point.
1: <clears throat> yeah, I know. I know Ricky Williams. Um, yeah. No, I was thinking, um, yeah, he was a young guy. Yeah, Johnny I'm, definitely... I'm not sure he I'm young. But I
0: don't know if he ever got... He, had some,
1: he had some kind of problems. some kind of criminal problems or
3: attitude well, problems. Yeah. Uh, okay.
1: Okay. All right. Cannot conform your behavior. Right. Exactly. <laughs>
0: And you know, you right. well, gotta conform your behavior
1: when you make that kind of money. Correct. And well and you you know, you get in life I don't yeah. some kids don't seem to realize that. In life sometimes you have to be able to conform your behavior.
2: Absolutely. You cannot
1: go around acting like you know, nobody matters but you. It just doesn't work that way. Um
3: Absolutely.
1: So but we we could talk about it because the subject of tonight's show certainly has a history of an inability to conform his behavior going way back.
2: You
0: are lying about that. this guy is definitely <laughs> uh, not socially acceptable,
1: so but first, I want to go over some new developments uh in the past week, mm-hmm. or a little bit more than a week. Uh, first of all, Stephen Avery, uh, of course, as people remember, he uh, Kathleen Zellner has amended his state post conviction claim to not only try to get the trial the to get the judge to recuse herself from handling his case on the basis that she was also a judge, the judge presiding over. Uh, Wrongful death suit in civil court, mm-hmm. uh, but also to allege basically destruction of evidence that would have exonerated Avery when bones from uh, that were collected during the investigation were returned to Teresa Hallback's family in September of 2011, which was after the Court of Appeals affirmed Avery's conviction, but prior oh. to the state Supreme Court denying a writ. Right. And so, you know, his, so his conviction is... He's likely not going to be successful because um, and, and the state has filed their response. Procedurally, he's off. Um, this was something he could have raised in the first uh, post conviction writ that he filed back in 2016. Now she right, claimed, absolutely. "Oh, we just found out about this, you know." But it, it's beginning to look like they had the they had the report a lot longer than she says she had the report,
3: mm-hmm. and.
1: um so now, uh, basically, I think in when a recusal is requested, usually the chief judge of the circuit decides whether or not the judge should be recused or not, if the judge doesn't recuse themselves voluntarily. So I think right now it's going to be before the circuit judge. I don't think the judge should have to recuse herself. She hasn't done or said anything publicly that uh, suggests that she's not impartial and unbiased Um, and what she when she presided the period that she presided over the Hallbox civil suit was at the very end there was never a trial there were never in hearings there was some discovery and she has no facts of the case from that civil claim no, no facts of any kind were ever presented to her. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, again, there's nothing that suggests she cannot be fair and impartial and unbiased in Stephen Avery's post-conviction claims. So, and of course, you know, Kathleen Zellner thinks, oh, the state's response doesn't address the merits of the claim, and so, you know, they're screwing up and we're going to win – but she said that when she filed the 2016 writ. And then when right. that right. was denied, she said, oh, well, I knew I wasn't going to win there. We're going to win in the appellate court. Well, now she's delayed the appeal with two more supplements. And when each supplement, when the you know 2017 supplement was denied, oh, well, we knew we weren't going to win there. We're going to win in the appellate oh. court. And so now there's a third supplement raising new issues. And when the if the circuit court denies that, she's going to say, well, we knew we weren't going to win there. We're going to win in the appellate court. And then they'll probably be prior, just prior to her brief being due, because this is the second time, right as her brief is due, she has these new issues right. that she wants to go back to the, the circuit court with. So we'll have to see how that uh how that plays out. Mm -hmm. And then on Adnan Syed, of course, the, the Amy Berg documentary, the case against Adnan Syed, which is really misnamed. It should have been the case for Adnan Syed. Mm -hmm. Um, Because uh, Amy Berg is not going to be unbiased. Um, uh, It ended, but there was a sort of bombshell uh, first of all, there was DNA testing done by the state on some of the evidence, including right. fingernail scrapings from Hayman Lee and some items from the car and some items found around the crime scene in the burial site. Um, right. Adnan, Syed, uh, Adnan Syed's DNA was not found. Jay Wilde's DNA was not found. No, me- no male DNA at all was found. Mm-hmm. There were some partial profiles that were inconclusive, and then the uh, full profiles that they were able to develop didn't exclude Heyman Lee. So basically, the DNA found the victim's DNA. Okay. Uh, now, the one of the interesting arguments that Syed's attorney made, well, if there's this struggle – she would have scratched the person's face and if if it was Adnan Syed, you would have found his DNA. Yeah, but you would have found the unknown male DNA. Absolutely. If that were the case. Absolutely. And there was no unknown male DNA found. There was one unknown female profile or partial profile on one or two pieces of evidence at the Leakin Park burial site, which may not even uh-huh. be related to Heyman Lee, um, but there was no unknown male DNA found on any of the items tested. Um, okay. That is not exculpatory.
3: Okay.
1: Absence of Adon Syed's DNA would only be exculpatory with unknown male DNA, male DNA identified through CODIS.
0: Okay, that wasn't obvious,
1: so basically. correct. Um, so and there, the, the of course, Adnan's bad people bad. are trying to portray it as being exculpatory, but it it really isn't because there's no unknown male DNA. There's no male DNA under her fingernails.
0: So basically, the only thing under her fingernails is her
1: own DNA. They're Pardon?
0: trying to. Uh, take advantage of the public's ignorance about DNA and say, hey, this means this, but it really doesn't.
1: Correct. Correct. Okay. And moving on, uh, on Jeffrey McDonald, uh, his camp is probably going to file a writ to the U.S. Supreme Court, but that hasn't happened yet. But uh, one, there's a passing Judge James Fox, who presided over the post conviction claims, I think in the late 1990s after Judge Franklin Dupree passed away. Uh, Judge Fox passed away on March 23rd, which was a week from last Saturday, a week past. Uh-huh. And so he is now, um, he had retired and passed he retired i think in twenty seventeen so he was only in retirement a couple of years but right. that was i think that was a note because he he uh decided on the d n a issues and uh decided the last writ that uh Mcdonald filed and held hearings in twenty twelve so uh that's a like a sad note right. Uh, And then Rodney Reed, his family, has instituted a postcard campaign to send postcards to the Bastrop DA, urging the Bastrop DA to give Rodney Reed a new trial. It's not up to the Bastrop DA. It's up to. to the Texas Board of Criminal Appeals.
0: Oh, okay, yeah.
1: So basically... They're inundating. Well, not really inundating. I think I think the guys receive like forty-seven, maybe forty-seven in a day. Um, but uh, you know, they're sending these cards to the DA, who, first of all, isn't going to do what the public tells him to do. Right. Frankly, um, and it's in his discretion not to do what the public tells him to do. If the public wanted him to arrest and charge Jimmy Finnell, he wouldn't do that because there's no evidence that Jimmy Finnell is the killer um, right, and Legal then also suspect. there yeah, uh and then also there is a rally planned in Austin at the state capitol, but it's not the legislators who are going to uh decide it is the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. And I believe so once on the again, 10th, that's Wednesday, April 10th. That's next this, Wednesday.
3: This sounds
0: like a plan to uh, take advantage of the public's ignorance. Hey, you know, when they don't get anything, any progress made, they can go, hey, these guys aren't going to let us do it, even though they know it's the public will. And the, the uh, the you know, once again, taking, taking – advantage of the public's ignorance not knowing that it's the Texas Court of Public Appeals, correct? Right? Am I understanding the well, it, correctly?
1: You know, I I think, yeah, it's it's you know, they wanna keep it you know, I, I they, they want to put quote pressure on officials. But that is not that is not what's gonna happen. What they need to do is present some real evidence to the courts that proves Rodney Reed didn't kill Stacey Sipes, and they haven't done that. And they don't, the right. reason they haven't done that is because there is no evidence. They've presented witnesses to the trial court and the Court of Criminal Appeals and the Federal District Court and the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. None of them found any of those witnesses to be credible. They didn't believe those witnesses.
3: Some of those witnesses
1: did not come forward during the original investigation. All these witnesses who claim they know Jimmy Finell killed her didn't go to the police in 1996 and say she was dating my cousin Rodney Reed and her boyfriend found out and killed her.
2: Right.
1: Um, So, again, well, I mean, I think it's – the problem I have with it is that some of these people, if you look at the Facebook page, Rodney Reed, Innocent on Death Row, I mean, some of these people get really upset and angry, and they're getting upset and angry at people who don't have control over Rodney Reed's fate. Right, makes sense. And they get they well, get mad at the court of appeal, court of criminal appeals, but the court of criminal appeals can only go decide based on the evidence that Rodney Reed presents them. And to date, Rodney right. Reed has not presented sufficient evidence. And it is on him now to prove that he didn't do this. You know, I they have the idea that innocent till proven guilty is, you know, forever. If I don't believe they proved the case, then I, I he's innocent till proven guilty, and that's not how it works. Once a jury declares that you're guilty, you're guilty, and the right. burden shifts to you to prove innocent. otherwise. Right. Correct. So, so that's uh, that's going to be next Wednesday in Austin. Guilty. Pardon?
0: It flip-flops as soon as you get uh, a guilty verdict. It becomes, hey, now you got to prove that we were wrong.
1: Correct. Correct. And that, you know, that's how it's uh, – that is how it has worked. That's how it's going to work. Um, Because you're the one making the cl- – you know, Rodney Reed's making the claims. It's up to him to prove them.
0: Oh, uh well, never mind, I was gonna ask you while we were still doing updates and stuff. I was gonna ask you what your thoughts were on the uh speed of how quickly they were and I have no clue who this gentleman was, but apparently a celebrity guy was shot uh over the weekend, and uh I was gonna ask you how uh if it was you know what you thought about the speed in which they were able to apprehend a suspect on that situation but
1: I'm Was not sure that the that. the rapper Nipsey Hustle or Yeah. The one in Los Angeles?
3: Yeah.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, you know, technology today, they probably had the guy on some camera somewhere in um you know, in the vicinity of the crime crime scene. And so they were what? able to identify him. They also may have identified him the impression that I've gotten from the little bit I've heard and read mm-hmm. is that he and Nipsey Hustle set had some kind of beef.
0: Oh, okay.
1: You know, so they may have developed it through technology and they may have also developed it through interviewing people who knew, like I said, I'm not familiar with it. I haven't read a lot.
3: Uh-huh. But
1: uh, I'm I'm looking forward, hopefully, Commander Gurnan will be able to come on the show because I think that's something that might really be a great show is just talking about he's a former homicide investigator. He was with NOPD Homicide for several years. He was the commander of NOP, NOPD Homicide for a period of time, and I think he'd be a great person to talk to about real-world detective work because – we see so many people in doing this second-guessing what the police did and why they did it and why they didn't do this and why they didn't do that and kind of get a, a, a perspective from somebody who's on the ground, has a body, and has to figure out who did it, how they did it, why they did it, when they did it. And so... um, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I'm, I'm giving him he's the commander of the 8th District, which is in the French Quarter, and okay. the NOPD Mounted Unit, which is very busy with Mardi Gras, and I think we will probably be busy for a couple more weeks with the different festivals. Right. So I'm giving him a little bit of time to decompress before I start hounding him. <laughs> okay. And then it's gonna be like every couple three days. Any decision from your PIO yet? (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, but I met him at Horses, Hops, and Cops, and Uh you know he's really nice. And he and I talked for a while, and I think he'll be a great guest guest just for homicide investigation in general.
0: Right, absolutely, that will be awesome, so, especially you know, yeah, not to stereotype New Orleans or anything, but you know, especially because of uh you know the wealth of stuff he probably has had to deal with,
1: oh yeah, oh definitely um, so but we'll we'll have to i I'm keeping the I'm not gonna put it on the schedule till i I get a confirmation from him.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. I understand. Yeah.
1: That. Well, all right. We ready. Let's go ahead
0: and jump back in, Lisa.
1: All right. Um, I think if anybody who's listening, if you listen to parts one, two, and three, we profiled the victims, we profiled the Manson, Manson and his family members. Uh, we talked about the murders and the investigation uh, in part. We talked about the murders, I think, in part two, and then we talked more about the investigation, arrests, and indictments in part three. Of course, as mm-hmm. people should remember, uh, the break in the case actually came when Susan Atkins was incarcerated on suspicion in connection with Gary Hinman's murder, and she ended up making a or making statements to two. Uh, independent witnesses or independent uh, co- co-incarcerees uh, right. that she and uh, the Manson family, what they were about, who Charlie was, and, of course, that they were the people who killed Sharon Tate, Steve Parent, J.C. Bring, vortex Prakowski, Abigail Folger in Benedict Canyon on August 9th, 1969. And those two women did the right thing. They went to the authorities, and that ended up breaking the case. Everyone was indicted in December. Susan Atkins Uh testified at the grand jury proceedings. Uh, Uh Of course, after testifying at the grand jury, she had second thoughts and – was not going to testify at trial. Right. So we're going to pick up, we start, everybody's been arrested. Tex Watson and Patricia Krenwinkel both bought extradition. Both of them lost the fight and they were each extradited. Krenwinkel from Alabama and Watson from Texas. And then, um, the trials began for the Hinman, Tate and LaBianca murders. Uh, the first trial was actually November of 1969, before the break in the Tate and LaBianca murders, when Bobby Boussoulay went on trial uh, for Gary Hinman's murder. Buselet uh-huh. as, as you recall, was found in Hinman's vehicle in San Luis Obispo, asleep. And uh, there was a knife found in the car. A finger, a fingerprint from Busselet was found in Hinman's uh, apartment or house uh, in an area, I think, in like kind of living room, bedroom area of the apartment.
3: Mm-hmm. So that
1: ties him to the crime scene. And uh, his first trial resulted in a mistrial. His second right. trial began sometime, probably in December of '69 or perhaps January of 1970. And uh-huh. he was convicted and sentenced to death in April of 1970. Um, there's not a lot of information about his trial. Uh, we do know, the only thing I know is Mary Bruner, who was present at Hinman's house that day along with Susan Atkins. She did testify at Boussoulet's trial.
3: Okay. And
1: um, then, of course, after she testified at Boussoulet's trial, Apparently, she tried to recant her testimony and refused to testify against Manson and the other defendants in their trials in Hinman's murder. So, uh, Boussoulet was convicted and sentenced to death, and he, uh, his direct appeal wasn't reported, so I don't know what any of the issues were. Uh, so, that's pretty much – that's all we know about Bobby. Then in uh, the murders of Gary Hinman, it appears the murders of Gary Hinman and Donald Shea were joined even though they they took place at two different times because it was all part of the conspiracy Um, and then Charles Manson, Bruce Davis uh, were tried separately for for those two murders because they both participated and in fact Manson actually was involved hands-on in mm-hmm. Donald Shorty Shea's murder. Um, right. They were both convicted. Davis's trial wasn't held until 1972. And I'm not mm-hmm. really sure when Manson's trial was held because none of the uh, records that I could locate gave any idea. It may have been more likely than not after his conviction in the Tate LaBianca case. Okay. Um, And then Susan Atkins pled guilty to first-degree murder on May 27, 1971, and Mary Bruner worked out an immunity or some kind of plea deal and then reneged on that, and the state unsuccessfully tried to punish her for that, and the Court of Appeals kind of slapped them down. So Mary Bruner <laughs> basically got away with breaking a deal and uh, not, not having any consequences. Um, but she was a kind of minor player. I mean, I think she was just there. Um, she was the mother of Manson's son, one of his sons. So that's that's kind of the end of the Hinman. There's not a lot of information about those because those weren't the really high-profile uh, crimes. Okay. And then in September of 1970, uh, the trial of Charles Tex Watson in the Tate and LaBianca murders began. And it appears that some of the trial for Watson was actually going on at the same time that the trials were going on for Manson, Atkins, Cronin, and Columban Houghton.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and Watson was convicted and sentenced to death. Because uh, you got to remember, he had a hand in killing everyone. He had a hand in Steve Parent, Sharon Tate, Jay Sebring, Wojtek Frakowski. Uh may he may not have had any hand in Abigail Folger because you know, that was Patricia Quenwinkle, but he had a hand in everybody and he was in charge in Manson's absence. Okay. Uh at the at the murder scene. So uh he was convicted and sentenced to death and then Manson Atkins Krenwinkel, and Van Houten were tried together their trial began in June and jury selection I believe took a long time nearly a month and the presentation of evidence began on July 24th 1970 Mm -hmm. Uh, of course the prosecution had a wealth of evidence there were In addition to Linda Kasabian, uh, Paul Watkins, Danny DiCarlo, uh, several other family members or kind of loose associates of the family did come forward, did give uh, inculpatory statements and corroborated some of the information that they had. Uh, Paul Watkins, I think, was one of the key witnesses in establishing all the whole helter-skelter motive. Because he was able to detail uh, Charlie Manson's statements about Helter Skelter, what it was, what it meant, what they were going to do, how they were going to do it, you know, all those things. Uh, And as crazy and as outlandish as it may sound to us, this is what Manson fervently believed. And so, you know, he believed it. It may sound crazy. And it didn't really ultimately come to pass, but it's what he believed would happen. Um, So the prosecution had, there were uh, Watson and Krenwinkel did leave fingerprints at the Tate house. And I believe there was some physical evidence found at the LaBianca house. So they were tied Uh to the scene. Um, Okay. And the... The challenge with Manson, because he didn't actually kill anybody, and his defense was, I didn't tell anybody to do anything. They did what they wanted to do. Right. And it would have worked. Manson wanted to disrupt the proceedings. Manson wanted to be in control of the proceedings. He wanted to rep- represent himself, but his uh, but the judge did not feel that he was uh, competent to do that and also felt that he would likely disrupt the proceedings if he were allowed to represent himself. So he was allowed to participate in jury selection, and he was allowed to cross-examine some witnesses, but his appointed attorney was kept on as uh an advisor
2: right and
1: when manson couldn't control his behavior because he wanted to shout out or talk back to witnesses or to uh make threatening gestures toward witnesses then the judge would remove him from the courtroom and he would not be in the proceedings for the rest of that day and that happened pretty frequently um, and, you know, I've seen people defend that and defend the defendant's right to do something like that, but they're only hurting themselves. Right. A. And B, when you go to the appeals court and you say, I was taken out of the courtroom, the appeals court says, yes, because you were shouting obscenities at a witness. You were threatening killers. <laughs> Um, you know, you were doing these things. This is consequences for your behavior. That is what criminal law. That is the core of criminal law: consequences for behavior. If you steal something and you get caught, you have a consequence for that. So, yeah, um, you know, and there were a lot of there were a lot of different things that they did. Manson would. Um, he would either directly coordinate or he would get messages through to Atkins, Krenwinkel, and Van Houghton. Tomorrow, we're going to do this. When I say this, you're going to do this. When I do that, you're going to do this. Or you're going to say this. Or you're going to sing this song. And in doing that, he played into Vincent Bugliosi's hands And he literally proved the conspiracy case for Bugliosi because he's saying, I don't have any control. And yet, when he makes a gesture and Susan Atkins, Patricia Glenwinkle, and Leslie Van Houten pop out of their seats and start singing one of his songs, it sure looks to a jury like you have control. Right. When have you, you say something to the judge and then Krenwinkel, Ben Houghton, and Atkins parrot everything you just said to the judge, it sure looks like you have control. When you appear in court with an X on your forehead and the girls walk in court with Xs on their foreheads, looks like control. Oh, yeah. When you shave your head and they shave their heads – Control, and then all your little followers outside the courthouse, they do everything uh-huh. you do. That sure looks like control. I would agree, so and in all the document, I've watched all these documentaries and all these interviews and parole hearings. and I think really, at the heart of it, I think Manson was trying to do something that would get him sent back to prison and they would never release him. Mhm. And that he behaved the way he behaved because he felt like he was entitled to because he had such a horrible life and he was in prison and you know he he grew up in prison and reform schools and you know but you and I talked about that. He had a chance with his aunt and uncle when he was a little kid. He had a a chance. He was out of his mother's influence. They loved him. They cared for him. Uh, Several interviews I've seen from different sources say they gave him whatever he wanted. And yet when a kid was mean to him in school, he got the other little girls in the class to go beat the kid up. Wow. Wow. And when they talked to Manson about it, he said, I didn't do anything. They did it. They wanted to do it. So he, he was bad. I think he was born bad, literally. Um, and so, you know, he didn't care about anybody but himself. And you notice if you watch the different interviews, they would say, well, how do you feel about, you know, murdering all these people or even all these people being murdered by – people who followed you and he's like well how do you you know how do you feel about me being in person all my life they beat me they knocked my teeth out they did all these things to me i was the victim how did how does that make you feel it's like they didn't beat you hard enough charlie right (laughs) you definitely needed harder beatings because you didn't get it or you liked it you know yeah so um so that ended up basically proving the prosecution's case and it also caused issues among the attorneys who were trying to represent Kernwinkle Atkins and Van Allen, and we wanted to save their lives. But they would act against the attorney's advice to per- participate in Manson's antics.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: and um, that was one of the sources of friction between Manson and Ronald Hughes, even though I, I don't believe, I believe Ronald Hughes' death was an accident. As I said, he was in an area that was experiencing flash flooding. There were storms. His companions decided to leave, and he elected to stay in that area and I think he ended up just getting himself into a bad situation and being alone could not get himself out of it and he perished unfortunately what happened was they had a break over the weekend he went camping when he didn't show up on Monday they did call I think a a one month recess (laughs) right and then, when he still didn't show up, they the judge appointed a new attorney, and the case went forward. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, a new attorney who wasn't present during the trial. This was in 1969. Uh, standards for death penalty defense were not something that had even been thought of or thought about, or Set down by the American Bar Association, or Criminal Defense Lawyers Associations, or any of those uh, organizations. And so, basically, in capital defense in '69, and before them, General, you had one attorney,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and that was it. There was no second chairs. You know, you had one attorney. That attorney represented you. Um okay. Manson was trying to get you know wanted to get the girls to fire attorneys uh, uh-huh. the girls wanted to represent themselves and again the judge was forced to deny their request because he didn't feel that they were competent in a death penalty case to represent themselves right um, the uh, one of the other bizarre things is that the defense rested without calling any witnesses well then okay. manson and and Crenwinkle and Houghton, Ben Houghton and Atkins all started raising a ruckus because they all wanted to testify and right. uh, the attorneys did not want the girls to testify, and I'm sure Manson's attorney didn't want him to testify, but um, the uh, the girls we're going to testify against the advice of the attorney. So there's a lot of wrangling among the attorneys and the judge. It's kind of bizarre. And if you watch either of the two versions of Helter Skelter, uh-huh. Manson ended up getting up on the stand and he testified outside the presence of a jury. of the jury. I think because they wanted to know what he was going to say and determine what areas he could not, put before the jury and what areas he could. Right. Um, And he was such a loose cannon. They had to do it that way
2: Uh because,
1: you know, you, you don't want to, and one of the other bizarre things, and I think it was earlier in the trial should have talked about it. uh, Richard Nixon had apparently been at some prosecutors law enforcement convention and he, he made a public statement that Manson was guilty. And uh-huh. there was a banner headline in the newspaper the following day Manson guilty, Nixon declares. Right. And somehow a newspaper just happened to get left where Charlie Manson could get his hands on it. Oh, and Lord. he displayed that newspaper to the jury. And then, of course, the defense attorneys are screaming and clamoring for a mistrial. But you can't get a mistrial when you do something that causes the harm that you're claiming you're suffering. Right. You know, I mean, you know, if the prosecutor had done it, if it had been on the prosecution table and it had fallen on the floor in view of the jury, of course, they would have been entitled to a mistrial because you can't unring that bell. Right. But when the defendant picks the paper up, lays it to the jury, no, you're not going to, you're not, you can't do things to invite error.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and that that was a big issue on appeal. That was bizarre, you know. It was bizarre that, you know, Nixon would make such a public statement it was the bizarre that that would be a banner headline. And it was bizarre that one of the attorneys, I don't know which one, freaking gave Manson the damn paper. Right. In order to, or maybe the attorneys were try, wanted to miss trial. Oh,
3: so, wow. um,
1: but anyway, yeah, Manson gets up on the stand and he, uh, he gives this bizarre thing about the children that they came to me because you, you know, you did all these things to them and, um, uh, you know, when they stab you, it's, it's your fault. And it was bizarre. If you can find a clip from either the, the, the earlier movie, I think it was 1976, Steve Railsback as Manson. I personally mm-hmm. believe was a lot better. But um, if you can find the clip of that testimony, find it on YouTube. Watch it um, because it it gives you the bizarre. But I think, again, I think a lot of Manson's bizarre was him trying to to play crazy to gain some advantage either uh-huh. in the interview or to take control of the interview. Or in prison, or in his case, or just to ensure that nobody would be fucking crazy enough to let his ass through a prison gate. Right. So, uh, and then again, the verdict, the, the sentencing ended on March 29, 1971. I think the verdict came in January of 1971. And they were, of course, all convicted of uh, – Manson, Krenwinkel, and Atkins were convicted of seven counts of first-degree murder, and Ben Houghton was convicted two counts of first-degree murder. They were also all convicted of conspiracy. Right. Based on you know the whole helter-skelter and the Manson control and that they were doing what he said. And doing what he wanted, um, and then the sentencing was held, and they were also sentenced to death, uh, which was handed down on March twenty ninth, nineteen seventy one. Okay. So that that is the trials. Um, like I said, they were bizarre. It would probably, I could probably go through uh, watching all the interviews with Bulliose. There are so many things that happened during the trials. Uh, you've probably seen video of the girls walking into court holding hands. The songs that they sang were written by Manson.
0: Of course.
1: And both Ben Houghton and Krenwinkel have said that while they were in jail, awaiting trial and on trial, Manson was coordinating either directly or through their visitors. Uh, The things that they were going to do, the things that they were going to say. Another interesting thing is all the girls claimed they wanted to testify, but what they wanted to testify to was that it was all Linda Kasabian's idea to try and get Bobby Boussoulay out of prison or out of jail for Gary Hinman's murder because she was in love with Boussoulay. And really? so that's why their attorneys didn't want them to testify because that's perjury,
3: right?
1: But they were again, they were trying to take the heat off of Manson. They were say, they were trying to say, look, Charlie didn't come up with this plan; that was Linda Kasabian. And I think it was also a way of um, making, trying to make the prosecution look bad, because they made a deal with Linda Kasabian for her testimony. And I think all really? the charges were eventually dropped against her. But she didn't kill anyone. And
3: yeah, right after good.
1: the, the, the La Bianca murders, she fled the family
3: mm-hmm. and left
1: her daughter there because she knew that if she tried to take her daughter, they would know she was running away. So survival was finished. And she, well, no, no, she was just so desperate to get away. Right. Now, if they had realized she was getting, if they'd realized she was fleeing, they probably would have killed her and her daughter, or at the okay. very least killed her, and then her daughter would have been raised by Manson, who was a pedophile. Right. Because Diane Lake, one of the one of the girls, when she joined the family, she was only fourteen, and there were other underage girls that were brought in. Um, So you know he he was uh, you know he he was a character, a mess, a mess. He's a sociopath.
0: Well, well, do you want to go ahead and uh, take a break here, and uh, we'll continue when we get back?
1: Yeah, that'll be great.
0: Okay, well, let's go ahead and take a break. You're listening to Claire and Convincing on Talk Radio 49. We'll be right back after this.
3: To the top of the we'll side.
1: Yeah, we didn't have the little debacle like we had last week (laughs) I put my phone on hold (laughs) Yeah,
3: that was certainly
1: a yeah, that was interesting I did it again while I was going outside but I I recognized when the screen turned yellow
0: The screen turns yellow?
1: Yeah, the little screen goes from green to yellow That apparently means you're on hold (laughs)
0: Yes, it does. He's sure. bones.
1: So, all right. So we've we've gotten to the conviction, and uh, then in February of 1972, uh, the California Supreme Court decided People versus Anderson, which was a case challenging uh, California's death penalty as cruel uh-huh. and unusual. And the Supreme Court basically outlawed California's death penalty for crimes committed prior to 1972. Okay. They found it unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So the death sentences of all prisoners were commuted to life. Okay. But at that time, California did not have life without parole.
3: Okay. So,
1: essentially, the sentences became 7 years to life because when they were when they were commuted to life, they became eligible to apply for parole in 7 years. Right. And so um, that is why we've seen all the parole hearings over over the decades from the various Manson family members because even though they were sentenced to life in prison, it's not really life without parole.
0: Right, right,
1: absolutely. And so the law entitles them to the chance of parole which we'll discuss Ah, a little bit later. Um, Now, California voters and lawmakers, well, the the lawmakers first, I guess, they responded to People versus Anderson with Proposition 17,
3: Uh which
1: was approved by 67.5% of the vote on November 7, 1972. And that reinstated the death penalty.
3: Okay.
1: Uh Furman versus Georgia was decided by the Supreme Court uh later in nineteen seventy two. And that I thought case... Furman
0: versus Georgia was seventy six.
1: No, that was Greg versus Georgia. Okay. Uh Furman was decided not long after Proposition seventeen.
0: Okay
1: And um, so basically, essentially, California's death penalty law uh, was deemed unconstitutional by Furman, uh, and then they looked at it again in '76 in jo- Greg versus Georgia. And most states also, after Furman, they enact and new death penalty statutes to gotcha. try and come into compliance. And I think it was Greg versus Georgia which decided if the you know if the uh statutes meet what we've you know the what we deem necessary then you know they're constitutional um, but uh once you commute a sentence, you can't reinstate the original sentence it just it can't okay. happen, and that's why sometimes you'll see people who who get resentencing. The most they can face is whatever they were originally sentenced to, but that means they could also okay. get less time.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So, um, like there was a case in Texas where the woman was sentenced to 25 years for killing her husband. She won resentencing, and she got 20 years Okay. instead of 25. Um, and we, I think we talked about Dahlia DiPolito. She had gotten 20 right. years, and people argued, well, she can't get more than 20. Theoretically, she could get more than 20, but the judge uh, basically just decided that it would look vindictive if he sentenced her to more than 20. Because right. it looked like he was right. punishing her for taking appeal, so um, that was, you know, that was it. And the sentences were actually commuted prior to the appeals of the various convictions being. Uh, I think they were probably in the process of appealing probably in the briefing stages at that point, or or of course the length of the trial, they may have been still trying to prepare the record. Right. Um, so the direct appeals went from the California Supreme Court, which is automatic in a death penalty case, to the California Court of Appeals, the 2nd District, which okay. is Los Angeles. Um Matt uh, Manson Atkins Crenwinkle and Watkin Watson uh Matt Manson Atkins Crenwinkle and Ben Houghton they had a joint appeal and okay. the convictions and sentences were affirmed. They appealed a, there were a lot of issues in the appeal. Uh some of them were challenging their inability to represent themselves which was affirmed, uh, challenging some of the evidence, admission of some of the evidence, which was also, you know, found to be without error. Um, mm-hmm. the, the opinion in in the Manson, Atkins, Kronwinkle, and Van Houten case is 69 or 68 pages.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Two columns. <laughs> Two columns. Right letter size paper. Um, it's and, and the you know the footnotes are like seven pages on okay. the the copy I printed out. I mean it's it's very long. Uh, but their convictions and sentences were all affirmed. The court did however reverse or vacate Van Houten's conviction. Um because When Ronald Hughes disappeared and a new attorney was appointed, he was at a disadvantage because he didn't observe the witnesses and therefore could not argue credibility of witnesses on behalf of Van Houten. And the appellate court felt that 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 prejudiced Van Houten and the result of her case might have been different. Had they – now, you know, they. there was – I guess what they expected the judge to do was give Van Houten a mistrial and let her start all over again with a new attorney. I don't know how you would fix a problem like that.
3: Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Other than granting, and when you're trying multiple defendants jointly, you know you can't grant a mistrial as to all of them and go back to square one and start the process all over again. And you really can't. You really, it's not, you know, judicially uh, a good idea to separate one defendant and say, okay, you get a mistrial by. And continue, you know, then the other defendants are going to complain. But uh, there was a, a lengthy dissent because there are many situations where an attorney see a witness testify because when a witness is in a retrial and a witness is no longer available and their prior testimony is read into the record, you're not, he's not observing them testify.
2: Right.
1: If he didn't represent the if he didn't represent the person at the original trial, so right. um, And then also, credibility was argued by the three other attorneys who were present to observe witness testimony.
3: Mm-hmm. And
1: the dissenter on the second district court felt that there wasn't anything that the attorney who was appointed for Van Houten there wasn't anything else he could cover they covered it all so uh so she she got a new trial uh with and and the same attorney who was appointed to represent her in the the big trial he continued representing her in the retrial
3: uh huh
1: So, um, her first retrial was in July and August of 1977. Uh, One of the things, Van Houten has never denied involvement in the LaBianca killing. But in her retrial, she argued that she was under Manson's influence and that the drugs that were given to her by Manson uh, so messed her up that she didn't know what she was doing. So she wasn't responsible criminally. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, one of the interesting things, Leslie Van Houten was not a virgin babe in the woods when Charles Manson found her. She started doing mescaline, pot, and other things at like 14. 14.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Or fifteen years before she met Manson. Okay. So you know she was already she was already taking drugs, all of her own accord. Manson was not shoving drugs down her throat. Granted, he he was a control freak, and he was the one doling out the acid, and he was giving you know, people more acid than he was taking himself. But, again, it it wasn't the first time she'd ever taken an acid trip. So, um, the first trial, retrial, was a hung jury. A mistrial was declared. And then in March of 1978... February, March, somewhere around there. um, She was tried a third time, and that time resulted in a conviction. And then, uh, of course, this was still 1978. Um, I think because her original death sentence had been commuted, they couldn't sentence her to death, so she was sentenced to life. Okay. And she was also granted bail pending appeal, which was kind of crazy, but I think she went back to her family and, and lived with her family and, and was able to conform her behavior uh, during that time. Probably because she thought she was going to be the charges. Uh, Her conviction and sentence were affirmed on direct appeal. Uh, There wasn't a lot to appeal. Um, So that was, you know, that was the end of her case. And um, another thing that's interesting, when I was researching Manson, he served time in a couple of... uh, California's worst prisons, Pelican Bay and Corcoran. mhm They like they make Oz look like a resort, a vacation, <laughs> from what I've read about the California Department of Corrections. Um and he okay. was also he had a uh another inmate, he was a Hare Krishna. Apparently, oh, wow. Charlie pissed that guy off uh, because the guy threw lighter fluid or alcohol onto Manson and then set him on fire in the 1980s and said so God told him to kill Charlie Manson. Wow. Yeah. So, um, yeah. It's, but, yeah, Manson did some time in some pretty – Pretty bad places.
3: He he was
1: transferred around a lot. Mm -hmm. But he also had the media attention. And he continued to have the media attention. Uh, I, I think until the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years, I think it kind of died down. And then there's not a lot of information on state post-conviction claims. Um, I'm, I'm sure they made a few uh, when Ferretta, which is the case that uh, deals with representation, a criminal defendant's right to represent themselves at trial. Um, I know Bruce Davis uh, made a claim related to Ferretta Uh, Unfortunately, Ferretta was not retroactive. It was decided long after their trials. Right. And so they couldn't use that decision to uh, claim error in their trials. And the only reported decision on post-conviction that I could find was on Bruce Davis. Uh, Again, Davis's judge wouldn't let him represent himself because he – had a real concern that the federal court found to be a justified concern about disruption of the proceedings so uh-huh. he was maybe he he was probably tried after Manson and the girls right and then uh Watson challenged uh he wanted to be credited for the time that he served in Texas while awaiting extradition. Mm -hmm. And the California Court of Appeals said no. You do not get credit for time you served in Texas while you were fighting your extradition back to California.
2: Right. Makes sense.
1: So, yeah and um then parole uh of course they they became eligible for the first time in 70, 78. eight mhm, and they have had parole hearings about every year every two years um the the board determines basically when you can come back and so sometimes they might set it at one year they might set it at two years they might set it at six years Uh, Manson appeared at some of his hearings and boycotted others Uh, and he took great offense at Doris Tate and Stephen Kay, who was the prosecutor uh, appearing at the hearings And, you know, he basically, it it was just another excuse for the Charlie show. So he sat down and, no, I don't feel any guilt. What about what you did to me? And, you know, that was the same old, same old. Um, And I don't know whether he had a lot of disciplinaries, but I know he he had conflicts with other inmates. And he more likely than not had conflicts with uh, guards because he was a control freak and he wanted to be in control so he was always trying to maneuver things into control, into his control. And that right. would not sit well, especially for the authorities who are supposed to be the ones in control. Um, he was yeah. never granted parole. He was never found to be suitable for parole. Yeah. Um, more likely than not because in at least one interview, he said, "Well, maybe I should have killed more people. That would have been a bigger contribution
3: wow.
1: to the world." Um wow. And you know, saying I could tell, it. he told a reporter or, or someone from NBC, "You know, I could pick up this book and bash you in the head, and you know, bash your brains in." Um, you know, the, I, I think he, but I think he wanted to stay in prison. And right. maybe all of this was just a way for him to go back and never, never be put out. True, true. Although, you know, Manson was one; he was one to say one thing and then do something else. You know, like say, "I didn't, I didn't have control of anybody," and yet he's obviously controlling them. Because uh, when uh-huh. he when he says "jump," they say, "How high?" Um. And uh, so, you know, I and maybe there was a part of him that was just a little bit crazy. Right. Just a little bit. A, a little bit. A little bit crap crazy. And so he didn't know what he wanted. hmm And, of course, we, we all remember where we were when we heard in November of 2017 that he had died at the age of 83 uh just a few days after his 83rd birthday right and so he is no longer uh
0: eligible for parole <laughs>
1: n- well i mean you know he 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 served life yeah there was a legal Which fight over his say, body
0: honestly, honestly you know when we were talking a second ago, and you said, you know, obviously they are now technically eligible for parole. I have a feeling that the state of California is not going to let any
3: of them out.
1: Uh you'll you'd be surprised, but we'll <laughs> we, okay. we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Um, yeah, so he's uh, he served life, and he. Uh, There was a fight over his body. The grandson of his, I think, second son, because remember he had two sons named Charles Manson. Right. He had Charles Manson Jr., and then he had another Charles, I think Charles Luther Manson or something like that. Uh, The grandson of the second son, who, I don't know, I don't know if it's irony, but the, that gentleman killed himself in nineteen
3: ninety
1: one. Mm-hmm. Uh but he did get control of the body. There's another son, I think it's Mary Bruner's son, who's tried to get control of the estate. Um, and I don't know what if anything, whether everything was given but as far as the body, uh he got control and Zach Bagans from Ghost Adventures apparently filmed a memorial service for Charlie um, which you can find on YouTube
3: mm-hmm.
1: I, uh, I I found it and started to watch it and then thought no so, right <laughs> um, and but, maybe you uh, thought you
3: heard...
1: well my aversion to Zach Bagans once right. I saw in the comments that he was involved I was like mm-hmm. this is not worth my time so Friday. now maybe one day when I'm bored I'll google it up and and watch the whole thing and I think he was actually uh cremated and the ashes were spread in an undisclosed location so uh that is the end of Charles Manson Mhm. Uh Charles okay. Tex Watson um now he has like all of all of the other members he has conformed to the rules in prison and he's actually done better in prison than he did when he first left Texas for California. And instead of going to school and getting a degree and leading a normal life, he started selling drugs and hooked up with the Manson family. Um, mm-hmm. He's apparently been ordained, and he conducts services in the prison chapel, um, assists the pastor. He worked in a position where... Um, he had access to you know office and and things like that, so I mean he's he's done well, he's conformed to the rules, he's bettered himself um, he claims to be remorseful and sorry for what he did, but uh-huh. he also blames all of it on manson.
0: I mean, I I tend to, to, uh, you know, kind of be like I don't like people blaming other people for their mistakes as well. But, I mean, eh, we've already established that he had some sort of control over these
3: folks.
1: Well, the thing is, he was – Watson was raised Texas God-fearing church-going family.
3: He Mm -hmm. knew
1: right from wrong. Right. That was ingrained in him. It was less than a year, 18 months, and Charlie Manson and there were other people in the family that this didn't work on. Okay? Paul Mm -hmm. Watkins. He was one of the people, when he knew people were going to start dying, He was like, fuck, that shit, I'm out of the door. Right. Because he knew right from wrong, and he kept right from wrong. And Watson Mm -hmm. didn't do that. Watson, according to Sharon Atkins, walked into the Tate House, and after they rounded everybody up, they asked him, what do you want? What are you doing? And he said, I am the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's business. Touche. And Charles Manson doesn't, I mean, sure, he set up the condition by creating this family where there are no rules and there are no consequences and you do what you want. And that's the key. You do what you want. Right. Death is love. If you love somebody, you have to be able to kill them. Not only do you have to be able to die for him, you have to be able to kill them. And so Manson may have set the conditions, but something within T- Tex Watson was not right and was broken. Right. Because Manson basically turned him into a weapon. Okay. I
3: mean, I can yet, do
1: that. He had a hand in every single death except Hinman only because he was not invited. Okay. And so I just, I'm glad he's, you know, he's married. He had four children or three children because there were conjugal visits Mm
3: -hmm. at one
1: time in California. Um, Right.
3: Doris Tate.
1: Doris Tate, apparently uh, Sharon Tate's mother, Doris, Apparently, had a hand in putting an end to that practice. Wow. Um, but he was sentenced to life in prison,
3: mm-hmm. and
1: he should serve life in prison. And for him to go to a parole hearing and talk about all the things that he's done and minimize his role and claim it was all Manson's influence, and it wasn't really him, and that's not who he is, and that's not who he was, is insulting. And if if Watson were to be paroled after 48 years, he would have served only six years per murder. Right. Because he committed nine murders.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Because I count Paul Polanski, even though the law of California could not. Okay. And he had a hand in each one of those murders. He is the one who bludgeoned Wojtek Frykowski and stabbed him. He is the one who shot Stephen Parent five times. He stabbed Sharon Tate. He stabbed Rosemary LaBianca. He stabbed Rosemary LaBianca. The only one he probably did not kill is Abigail Folger. That was all Patricia. Right. So um, I think he deserves life in prison, and I think if he really were remorseful, (coughs) he would not go and try to get paroled. He would do his time and do life. I mean he's in his sure. late 60s early 70s now. True, true. Um, so that's that's it, you know. He's never been proved or found to be suitable for parole. Okay. And one of the factors and we'll talk about it a little bit more when we get down to uh to Leslie Van Houten, you know, the crime for which you were convicted and sentenced is one of the considerations. And I think that's something a lot of the advocates for the Manson family members, uh I think that's something they really lose sight of.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: They think, oh, they've been in prison forty eight years. They've done their time. They've done enough. It's enough, but it's not. It's Charles Watson's six years per body.
3: True.
1: That's not counting Paul Polanski. You know, it's even less than that if you count Paul Polanski, who died because his mother died. Mm Mm-hmm. True. Um, And then... You know, Susan Atkins also applied for parole Uh, in the early to mid 1970s. She wrote a book called Child of Satan, Child of God, which I actually did read. Um, Once my mother figured out that I was not planning to murder the family by reading Helter Skelter, (laughs) um, she felt it was okay. I was mature enough to read. Susan Atkins' book and I read it and she actually took a lot more responsibility for what she had done at that point she had converted to Christianity Uh, she was off drugs she was in a controlled environment and she was participating in different programs in prison that probably helped her conform her behavior and occupied her so that she wasn't looking for trouble. She was one of the stranger ones of the group.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: one of the, one of the people in an interview when they first joined the family, they were in this you know circle and Susan Atkins walked over, squatted in front of her and cut one and then grinned. What? What? That was Susan Atkins.
3: Wow.
1: You know, and you know she was a wild child before she met Manson, and she made the choice to do that. You know, she yeah. had a trauma in her early, or in her early teens, when her mother died, and she had conflict with her father, but. Again, you know, a lot of kids lose a parent and have conflict with the remaining parent, and they go on to be normal, productive, law-abiding citizens who continue to value right and wrong, and who try to do the right thing, Mm -hmm. and who avoid doing the wrong thing. And that wasn't her. And again, she's in this community of people where there are no rules, there are no consequences. You do what you want. Although for the women, it wasn't so much do what you want. It's do what Charlie wants you to do. Right. Because remember, we talked about it. If Charlie brought a biker in who smelled like horse crap, who hadn't bathed in a month, with sores all over the place and who knows what diseases and he says Susan Atkins have sex with him Susan Atkins couldn't say no right she had to have sex with him whether she wanted to or not and that was the kind of crap Charlie did
3: just to test to
1: to gain control and to test him yeah Um, so she did apply many times and of course, like as with tech, she talked about all her accomplishments in prison and the programs that she helped start. And then in 2008, she was diagnosed with brain cancer and Mm -hmm. she sought compassionate release based on the claim that she only had months to live
3: hmm
1: That was denied. And then she actually lived probably close to a year after that, and she passed away in September of 2009. Okay. So, again, she did end up serving life. Her sentence ended when her life ended.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's the way it works. So, um, yeah. Again, that, you know, that's uh, Susan. I can, and you know, actually, real quickly, I want to read something from one of Watson's parole hearings. Uh huh. And I, I wholeheartedly, heartedly agree with this sentiment. This is from Anthony. De Maria, who is Jay Sebring's des- uh, nephew. Mm-hmm. And if you search his name, he looks like his uncle.
3: Okay.
1: I mean, like scary. He was a young child. Um, and, uh, I'm trying to find the passage that he wrote. Part of what torments me all these years and today is the severity of Charles Watson's crimes and how horribly the victims suffered. The murders dealt seven gunshots, 170 stabbings, and 13 times a blunt object was used to bludgeon. Mr. Watson fired all seven gunshots, crushed a skull, he bludgeoned 13 times, and stabbed over 100 times with a bayonet, butch knife, or a carving fork. He butchered a full-term pregnant woman and her child, even as she cried out for the life of her baby. Mr. Watson dealt final blows to, the, to all the Tate Labiaca victims. He mutilated and disfigured victims as they lay dead. It is a twisted travesty that poor could ever be mentioned for mass murderers, let alone Charles Watson's crimes most callous and inhumane. It is incomprehensible how a man could repeatedly kick a prone man in the face as he lay dying on the ground, how a man could butcher a restrained pregnant woman and her defenseless child, how a man could riddle a teenager trapped in his car with bullets, how a man could stand before his victim tied to a chair, his hands tied behind his back, and choose to shove a carving fork or butcher knife 20 to 36 times how a man could team up with another killer and stab a woman forty-one times, thirty-six times in the back. There's that you. is, and and that he's that he's thrived in prison and followed the rules and bettered himself is a credit to him, but it doesn't erase what he did.
0: Absolutely not.
1: And that is where um and we'll we'll hear uh we'll hear from Anthony again uh later because he's he's had some some very poignant things to say. And you know, we've gotta I think that's something we we don't talk about, we haven't talked about as much. Although I think we talked about it a little bit with Nicholas um when we talked about uh his brother Michael. Uh-huh. The death not only affects the victim directly, but it affects the family just as directly. True. And sometimes, as in this case, the families are tortured. I mean, Doris Tate, Patty Tate, Deborah Tate have all talked about their fears. And imagining of what happened to Sharon Uh
2: and the fact
1: that little Paul never, ever had a chance to live. I mean, at one of the hearings, Deborah said, I would have a 46 year old nephew. Mm hmm. But he's not here. True. And, you know, that's. Parole for people who have done such horrific crimes is not justice.
0: True. I would agree.
1: So, uh, and then Patricia Kleinwinkle she's also applied many times. Um, she's claimed battered woman syndrome because she was apparently one of Manson's main girlfriends and he, she claims now that he abused her although she never made any claims about abuse during her trial and any of her appeals, and any post-conviction claims that I could find. Um, And so she has never been found to be suitable for parole. Okay. She also blames drugs. But again, I mean, you made the choice to do drugs. And again, before she met Manson, she was, She was experimenting with drugs. Susan Atkins was experimenting with drugs. Charles Watson was experimenting. The drugs, the drugs were not something that Charles Manson forced on them. No, they were already there. Um. So uh, Bruce Davis, he's been trying to get parole as well. He does not feel. You know, he just brought Charlie over to Hinman's. Charlie's the one that almost cut his ear off. But Bruce Davis was kind of the second in command for Manson Uh within the family. Uh And so, you know, he was, and again, a conspiracy, you don't have to be the one who causes the victim's death in order to be guilty under a conspiracy theory. You don't have to physically lay a hand on the victim to be guilty under conspiracy theory. If you uh-huh. went there knowing the victim was going to die, and none of them can deny that that's what happened. I mean, even even Leslie Van Houten, she knows when she goes to the La Bianca house, she knows those people are going to die. Right. And so under conspiracy, you don't have to kill anybody. But you didn't do anything to stop it. And she made statements. Davis has also, you know, never been uh, a proof of parole. And one of the other things that when I watch these hearings, and I watch these statements that they made, you know, they, they act like they're entitled to parole and they talk about forgiveness and they talk about rehabilitation and they talk about how they're changed people. Mm-hmm. But none of that erases what you did and what you did oh, yeah. beyond anything that, you know, that I, I couldn't even imagine. Doing half right. of that, you know. When I owned a gun, I mean, one of the things that I I dreaded was somebody coming into my house and me having to, you know, actually, defend myself and kill them, and actually use it. Of course, a friend of mine said I I probably had better luck if I just threw it at them.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it was a thirty-eight, and it was exceptionally loud. Um, but when I, when I borrowed his nine millimeter at the range, I did a lot Uh better with the nine millimeter because it wasn't as loud. I was in with the 38, I was anticipating the boom, uh, but the nine millimeter was, was not as, not as bad. So I was able to, you know, maintain my focus on the target and not worry about the loud noise. We were at the range. I was firing the 38, and the police officer's like three stalls away on the range. Mm-hmm. One of them came over and said, what in the hell is she firing a shotgun? And I was like, no, mm-hmm. this is the old 38. And I'm like, damn, that's loud. Damn. So it was a snub nose.
3: Ah, okay. And it was a
1: Brazilian Smith and Wesson.
3: Mhm.
1: So I don't I don't know why it was so loud, but it was it was horrible. All right, so we move on. Leslie Van Houten. Um, again, oh, after many 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 years of going before the parole board and not being found suitable, and whining and crying about it, uh, Leslie in 2016 was finally recommended for parole Okay. I think Governor Brown appointed multiple liberal members to that board and more likely than not I'd be willing to bet that most of them were too young to remember or know anything about Manson uh
3: huh
1: or what went on that's just my speculation Um, but you know Leslie Van Houten has done a lot of revisionist history Um, one of her claims is that she did not actually kill anyone when she stabbed Rosemary LaBianca 16 times Rosemary was already dead so it doesn't count of course not. And then also, and, you know, right after the murder, she told one of the other girls who didn't participate that she stabbed Rosemary LaBianca 16 times. She thinks she might have been already dead, but the more she stabbed her, the better it felt. Wow. And this is in 1969, right after the murder. That was her attitude toward what she had just done. Of course, <clears throat> of course, now she's forgotten about that. Because at one of the 90s parole hearings, she was confronted with that statement. And all she could do was kind of go, um, yes, I did say that, you know. So, um, but she was recommended for parole. It was reversed by Governor Brown, and he based his decision on the nature of the crimes, not only the LaBianca murders and Van Houten's participation in them, but also the whole family and the the Tate murders as well. And... Uh, she challenged that, that reversal in court and the superior court affirmed the governor's reversal, found that he did have adequate grounds to reverse the recommendation of the parole board. She went back in 2017. Again, they recommended parole. Um, I think, you know, changing the story at the parole hearings, and she tries to say she has remorse, but then she'll say something like, I, you know, I am sorry that I let this happen to me.
0: Really? Uh,
1: you know, I, I was under Manson's influence. I was taking so many drugs. This is what the drugs do to you. You know, I've gotten a, a bachelor's degree and a master's degree, and I've studied what these drugs do for you, and this is they rot your brains. You know, okay, but again, you know she's she's participated in programs, she's kept her nose clean, she's followed the rules, she's gotten a bachelor's degree and a master's degree. I think in literature, but again, uh-huh. she is not a different person.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely Just not. Just because
1: she's done those things. No, she's not the 19-year-old, but she, that that she could, at 19, participate in something this heinous. Again, she's sentenced to life. Granted, being only only responsible <clears throat> under the law for the for Bianca death because she wasn't present at the Tate crime scene. She was still part of the conspiracy, and you know, at one of the hearings, she was asked, "Well, you know, you wanted to go to the Labiancas. You were, you said you were upset about not being at the Tate house. Well, yeah, I, I wanted to contribute to the cause." Of murder and mayhem. And you know the fact that she could think like that at 19. Who's to say that she won't. Get out of prison. Be under stress. Start using drugs again. Find somebody. golly esque And allow that person to remold her. And turn her back into a. Lulu or whatever her, her new name was when she was a right. to go on another killing spree, you know, um, and that's, you know, that's always a possibility. And the fact that, again, she made the choice and she was also raised in a good family and should have known right from wrong. True. And you know, Nancy could only break down. Nancy could only break down that morality if you let him, because there were people in the family who did not let him. True,
0: true, like you said earlier. Catherine,
1: Catherine share as an example. She didn't participate in any of the murders. She knew right from wrong, and she knew something was not right. She just kept her head down and kept quiet about it and kept her thoughts to herself right. until she could get away. Um, 2017 reversal was also challenged and was affirmed again by the Superior Court, which once again found that the governor's grounds were sufficient, and that decision has been appealed to the Second District Court of Appeal, Um Ben Houghton has filed her brief, the state has filed a brief, and I believe her attorneys have answered it or responded. And so there's a decision pending by the second district court. Uh, And then in 2019, in January of this year, she was once again recommended for parole, and a decision on that recommendation is currently pending with Governor Newsom who was elected okay. and took office in January. Um, okay. And this is um, where I want to read something from the letter to uh, Governor Newsom that was written by Anthony De Maria. Um Regarding Van Houten's parole uh, okay. referral, <clears throat> Ms. Van Houghton and her attorney, Richard Pfeiffer, claim responsibility for her offenses, yet continually minimize her involvement and role in these crimes, blaming cult, influence, and Manson control. The attorney states, without Manson, none of these murders would have happened and describes the petitioner as one of the lower players in the Manson cult. This was no cult. It was a very violent crime organization. In the months leading to Ms. Van Houten's murders on August 10, 1969, Leslie Van Houten and her accomplices committed extensive crimes involving drug trafficking, credit card fraud, grand theft auto, prostitution, pimping, extortion, pedophilia, the torture murder of Gary Hinman, the drug deal burn of Bernard Crow, the attempted murder of Mr. Crow after he was shot in the chest. August 8th, 9th, the murders of six individuals on Cielo Drive. To reiterate, oh. this is no cult. Leslie Van Houten is no lower player. She is a prime criminal and sadistic killer in the Manson family. Yet in her own words, I don't minimize. I feel like if I minimized, I would find easy ways to live with the guilt of what happened because I'm passing the buck on to somebody else so my conscience doesn't have to deal with it. But that's who I am, and it's not what I do with my life. Knowing him has never eased the shame in how I attempt to make right what happened. What happened is a hell of a way to describe these crimes. Past hearing on April 14, 2016, the inmate said, I hope you're not understanding that I know it's my responsibility that I allowed this to happen to me. Her description is passive participant is a consistent pattern, hearing after hearing, revealing a disconnect and minimization of her actions, even after decades of reflection and rehabilitation. (laughs)
0: Right.
1: So um, you know, and like again she claims well that she didn't she didn't actually kill Rosemary LaBianca so she shouldn't do life in prison. But again, she's answered the question many times when she was asked when you went into that house, did you know people were going to die? And she says yes. Right. But she portrays it as something that she was passive, that Tex had to put the knife in her hand and force her oh. to stab Rosemary LaBianca's La by And frankly, stabbing a dead body 16 times, I don't find that to be a, uh, a, a something that you should get a free pass for. I mean, that's mutilation of a corpse.
3: Yeah. No.
1: It's definitely. a crime. You know, it's yeah. it's, not, it's not forgivable just because they were already dead. And how does she know? Nobody's ever asked her, did you take the woman's pulse? <clears throat> did you check to see if she was still breathing? What makes you, you know, she may have suspected she might be dead. But even in 1969, she expressed some doubt as to whether or not Rosemary was actually dead.
2: Right.
1: And it's 16 stabs in the back. And she also sure. held Rosemary LaBianca while Patty Krenwinkel was stabbing her at one point. So if one of those stab wounds was mortal then she did have a hand in the death because she was holding her to enable Patty to stab her more efficiently. True, true. And so um, we'll just have to wait and see what happens with Leslie oh, Van and <clears throat> Governor Newsom, though, given his moratorium on death penalty in California, I'm a little concerned.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Because I'm, I'm concerned that he will say, "Oh, they're rehabilitated. They've done enough time." Although Leslie's been out and's only done twenty four years, and actually she's been in prison in prison less time because she was uh, granted pro- uh, granted bail in seventy six, and didn't return to prison until she was convicted again in seventy eight. So, she's actually on, only been in prison, what, 41 years?
2: Uh-huh.
1: So, she's served 10 and a half years per victim? True.
3: Uh,
1: so, you know, I don't think that's enough time.
3: Absolutely and I think not. if
1: they really had true remorse, they would not... Be going every year and trying to get parole and acting like they're entitled to it because they've been in prison long enough, in their opinion. Um, you know, I I think that they should be paroled when Sharon Tate and Paul Polansky and Wojtek Frykowski and Steve Parent and Gary Hinman and Jay Sebring and Rosemary and Lena LaBiaca rise from their graves, and Donald Shea rise from the graves and rejoin the world. Then they can be paroled. Because that's the only thing that undoes what they did.
2: True, true. Um,
1: and you look at, you know, Doris Tate and Paul Tate, Sharon Tate's parents, uh, they have died. Um, Paul and Doris both attended parole hearings, and they were doing this, like, every year, every two years. Sometimes there'd be a, a hearing for Watson and then a hearing for Manson and then a hearing for Krenwinkel and Atkins and Van Houten, and, you know, they've just been doing this. Um, they did this for for the rest of their lives. Uh, Sharon's sister Patricia when her mother died she became the spokesperson she began going to the hearings, speaking for the family she died of breast cancer in I think 2000 Mm-hmm. and now Deborah Tate the, Sharon's middle sister uh, she is now taking up the mantle and doing this. Of course, Anthony De Maria and his mother have spoken on behalf of Jay Sebring and Sebring's family. Um, and uh, at one point, Suzanne, uh, Rosemary LaBianca's daughter, from her first marriage, uh, she actually forgave Tex Watson and tried to... Uh, spoke for him at one of his parole hearings and she and Doris Tate had a great encounter. Um, but that also led to people believing that Suzanne had a hand in the deaths of Rosemary and Lino.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So it came back to bite her in the butt. Because then conspiracy conspiracy theorists, theorists hooked her up with the family And said, oh, she wanted to get rid of her her mother and father-in-law, you know, mother and stepfather. So this is what she did, uh, which is speculation and totally, probably, totally untrue. Right. Um, And, you know, they they talk like they have a right to parole, and they're entitled to parole. Just because the law says you get to try in a prescribed period and that the board and the governor have to meet certain criteria, that doesn't mean parole is guaranteed. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that they can look at is the nature of your crime. And the nature of their crimes is so horrific that what they have done hails in comparison to what landed them in prison
3: Absolutely. and you know
1: you got you got to look at it if she could be controlled by Manson she can be controlled by someone else
3: Very and true. you know
1: cuz she's controlled she's controlled in prison It's a controlled environment. People tell you where you can go, what you can do, when you can eat, when you can sleep, when you can make a phone call. And, you know, you you don't have any autonomy over your life. But when you're out on the street and it's stressful and you're trying to find a job and perhaps you're going to find people who look at your crime like I do – who aren't going to want to hire you. And, you know, or, or, well, she qualified for Social Security when she gets out, although she never put a penny in the system because she never worked, except the well, a brief time at a law firm back in 1968. Um, and then, you know, we're, we're almost out of time I, I've I've jumped on the bandwagon or the soapbox I don't know which. Uh, Bobby Bobby Boussolet was also recommended for parole, uh, and the decision's pending by Governor Newsom on him as well. Uh, okay. You know he was only really involved in Hinman because he fell asleep in Hinman's car and got arrested very soon after Hinman was murdered. Right. Um, he's taken a little bit more responsibility and, and actually made public statements that are very against his interest. But, you know, again, he still thinks, I've served enough time.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I deserve to get a second chance. I'm entitled to get out. Well, Bobby, sweetie, When Gary Hinman rises from the grave and rejoins the world, I will be the first person to say, let that man out of prison. But until that happens, I think you still need to keep paying your debt to society by remaining where you are. Again it's good that you're you're following the rules and you're being a good boy, but you need to stay where you are and serve your time, which is life. Not when you think you've done enough.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And so that, folks, is the is the final word on Charles Manson. And, you know, for people that don't know me, I I do have an inflexible, somewhat inflexible attitude on this topic. But let me tell you why. When I was a kid, I did not have a parent who was, one of those who thought their children never did anything wrong. In fact, when I did something wrong, my parents were the first ones to call me on it or punish me for it. Mm -hmm. I have had people in discussion of the West Memphis Three case say, well, what if, you know, you did this and your mother... You know, what is your mother supposed to do and blah, blah, blah. It's like my mama would be the first one. If she found out I killed somebody, she'd be the first one at the police station or or office for the investigators, and she would testify against me, and she would say this was wrong. You know better. You were raised better than this, and now you're gonna. I mean, don't do the crime if you can't do the time. That song from Beretta, which you've probably never heard of, but anybody out there <laughs> over the age of thirty-five hopefully knows. Um, you know, she would. She would have been the. First. She wouldn't have protected me.
0: Right, and that's and, the way I mean, I, was in, a, your I was in I was
1: in a. A bad car accident when I was sixteen. I got a ticket for re- for reckless driving. She had an attorney that she worked with and she said, "Look, whatever the court says, that's how that's what it's going to be." Right. And we went down and luckily the attorney was you know was able to convince the judge not to take my driver's license away that I'd only had right. for about eight months. Um, wow.
3: Way to go, But,
1: uh, you know, I, I, it, it, and that's the thing, you know, if, if I did something wrong, I had consequences, and I paid the consequences. And she was that way herself, with herself.
3: hmm
1: And so, you know, she didn't, She wasn't one of those parents that never thought we did anything wrong. She knew us better than that. Right. (laughs) So, it's like, oh, what did they do this time, you know? Um, Yeah. Now, if we were unjustly accused, she would fight tooth and nail. Don't get me wrong. Um. But, like I said, if, if we did something wrong, she was the first one to call us on call upon it. Right. And um, so uh, if my Uncle Gary's listening, uh, he can tell you. And I think I, I think my grandparents were that way, too. So that's how she was raised.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I and mean, that's how I was raised. My mom used to tell yeah. my grandparents when I'd stay over with them.
1: Hey, if you need to whoop them, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I think my mom would have that rule. <laughs>
3: oh Lord, no. also, Well, anyway, that is
1: it. We we finished Manson, of course. Uh, uh, again, I'm I'm kind of enjoying the new development section.
0: Absolutely. I really enjoyed so this. So, uh, I, I think I'm going to
1: make I'll make I'm going to make that a permanent part because we've covered so many cases and there's always something going on. Even if it's just yeah. one thing. Um so and of course like if you see anything, you know, PM me so that I I can put it on the list for the following week. Yeah,
0: absolutely.
1: And uh, so of that, is, that is the end of – pardon?
0: I said you always say it before I do, and you're the one that's telling me.
1: <laughs> that's true. But, I, you know, I'm just letting you know. It's, if you hear something, especially in Arkansas, about Stacey Johnson, Liddell Lee, uh, any of those cases that we've covered out of Arkansas,
3: <clears throat>
1: um, you know, let yeah, me know. Absolutely. And I'll confirm it and um I might have to assign you the uh, Arkansas facts from now on because it's getting it's getting harder and harder for me to find facts about Little Rock and things in Little Rock and things going on in Little Rock. So I think every Monday you need to tell me something about Little Rock or about okay. Arkansas. I can do that. Every Monday and I'm gonna I'm gonna hold you to it because I'm gonna bug you all day Monday. yeah, you know, Yeah, Michael?
0: Is it yet, Michael? I'll probably forget.
1: Yeah, because I'm I'm your podcast wife. I will now. There you go. There you go.
3: That'll work.
1: (laughs) So, all right. Well, that is is the end of Charles Manson. Um, I'm glad we did four parts because we would have never gotten through everything in one or two. Right,
0: right. And I mean, like I told you before, I absolutely like that we did it because in so many parts because it allowed us to go more in depth.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think that probably uh, – uh, I think the majority of the cases that we're looking at, especially the ones where the crimes occurred before 2001, I think it's probably better to do two or three parts, or even four parts. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's put a bow on this one. Okay. You ready? I'm going to do the outro now. Okay. Thank Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and you want to know more, you can find us on Facebook, Go to our blog at clearingconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien Join us next week on Monday, April 8, 2019 at 8 o'clock p.m. Central for Commonwealth of Pennsylvania versus Mumia Abu-Jamal. We'll talk about the December 9, 1981 murder of patrol officer Daniel Faulkner at 13th and Locust Streets in Center City, Philadelphia. In Part 1, we'll talk about Officer Faulkner, his wife Maureen, his killer Mumia Abu-Jamal, who was formerly known as Wesley Cook. We'll discuss the facts of the murder, the witnesses and evidence, and Abu-Jamal's 1982 murder trial. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night.